0: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk.
1: Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Friday, March 20th, and today I am joined by Peter McCormick. Now, my guess is that most of you know Peter McCormick from his podcast, What Bitcoin Did, which is one of the best and one of the most popular Bitcoin podcasts in the space. Peter also has a new podcast slash video production called Defiance. And Defiance is about a world in upheaval right? And going out and finding the stories of people who are trying to exert more agency and sovereignty and liberty over their lives, right? And it it seems clear for those of us who have been in Bitcoin for a while how these different ideas connect together. But Peter really wanted a space to actually tell a different type of story. And so Peter recently got back from a, a bunch of different travel, both around Bitcoin and the Defiance podcast, that took him to the border of Turkey and Greece, as well as all over South America. So my original plan was to ask him about that travel and what he learned and how it related to Bitcoin and just kind of have a, a catch-up conversation on that. What it turned into, and this is both introduction and uh, warning, I guess, is much more of an extended conversation between friends around what it's like right now trying to make sense of politics in the age of the coronavirus. So I think if there's one main thread that goes through our conversation, it's the idea of nuance and specificity and being willing to not let yourself or being unwilling to let yourself be boxed into any one ideological label when everything incentivizes you to do that. And questioning whether on the other side of this coronavirus, whenever that happens, if the new world that gets remade, because I do believe that we are at that pivotal a moment of inflection and change, can be structured in a way that doesn't just prioritize and incentivize rank internecine warfare between ideological ideas, rather than thoughtful exchange and debate. Now, like I said, this is both introduction and warning. There are plenty of you who have been listening for interviews around macroeconomic policy who will have no interest in this conversation because, like I said, it's much more conversational. It's about politics, it's about global affairs. And so, if this is not your cup of tea, I totally understand. I will be back on Monday with another awesome breakdown show. But if you are looking for just a chance to decompress a little and think, about the broad context of all these issues we're living through, maybe this will be something that you enjoy. Now, one less warning. This is, like all our interviews, far less edited than our normal programming, and this one is definitely live, uncensored, and uncut. We get a little passionate with our words at certain points, but I hope you enjoy it. I appreciate you listening. Stay safe out there, and I will be back with another episode of The Breakdown on Monday. Peace, guys. All right, so I am here with the infamous Peter McCormick. How are you doing, man?
2: I'm doing, doing very well. How are you, Nathaniel? Very strange times uh, right now. It
1: is, it is strange times. Like, we, Man, I, I feel like uh, our, our younger selves talked about strange times last year probably and, you know, whatever. Like it, it's, it's, it's officially crazy times and it seems like it's been especially crazy for you lately.
2: Well, yeah. But, well, I think it's strange for everyone now and I think the situation that we all feared I don't know actually. I kind of get the feeling some people. Uh, I'm going to try and pick my words carefully, but some people are watching this situation and seeing things they expected to play in play out in terms of governments and and the centralized control play out exactly as they've always said it would. And I'm very fearful right now of getting into the whole um, uh, extended reach of the state this is going to be used by the government to, to exert bigger control over us they're going to put the army on the streets and reduce our civil liberty reduce our civil liberties and take control of our money blah 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 all those things that people in our field have been talking about for quite a long time that's been happening anyway that seems to be accelerating right now my view is that i understand why some of this is accelerating now in terms of the armies on the streets and i'd like to unwrap that with you actually and go into that and I think it's a natural reaction by the government. And I just think we need to be very careful to hold them to an account that when we come out at the end of this, this doesn't change the way we are treated as humans and it doesn't change our relationship between us and the government.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is, you and I were starting to chat about this the other day, but this mm-hmm. is uh this is not good for Twitter engagement, but this is a time that really, really calls for nuance in the way that we, because there's so many things that are not mutually exclusive. You can believe that it is a time for extraordinary measures while also wanting very ardently to ensure that the those Extraordinary measures in those extraordinary times aren't just kind of casually uh, filtered to normal, right? And yeah. uh, and the, the the problem is that a lot of the dialogue around those things is going to be totally binary, either a fear panic based reaction of uh, you know we'll give away all our liberty for the sake of security, or on the other hand a uh, a dismissive. Almost, uh, you know, like the 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 government shouldn't be helping at all because it's going to just lead to this. It's all the slippery slope, right? The slippery slope argument, mm-hmm. and there is a big, big middle space that is. About specifics, and I think that that's what I keep coming back to. It's like let's not. Uh, uh, for me, what I'm watching personally is specific instances of, you know, even even to the granularity of like what is the nature of the conversation that the U.S. government is having right now with Facebook, Google. What's the type of data? What are they looking in aggregate data? Is their person like you know these things? These nuances are are important, even if you're coming from a a, a position of. Um, a very strong kind of personal privacy and personal liberty. And and unfortunately, I think that it's it's hard to have nuanced, calm discussions in, in a time where honestly, the volume is, you know, this this time goes to 11, but it's actually like 13, you know, or 14 mm.
2: right now. I think nuance is, is important here, like you said. Um, I saw something on Twitter the other day where somebody, or even today, somebody said, and I think it might've been in San Francisco, certainly California, that somebody was fined $400 for walking their dog or being with a friend or something. And again, I don't know if that's true. It sounds believable. And if it hasn't happened, sounds like the type of thing that is going to happen. But I think it's a bit unnecessary. I think it's one of those situations where the person, the police officers could have said, look, we need people off the streets and this is why. But where I get really stuck at the moment is um, I've been led down the road, a new road in my life with libertarians and anarcho-capitalists who talk about personal freedom and nobody should tell anyone what to do, etc., etc. And I fully understand that. And there's a lot I agree with. I talked to and about this other day. I agree with a lot of it, but also at the same time, we, are, we don't have anywhere an anarcho-capitalist society. We don't have anywhere have a libertarian government. So we are in, this, in, in a world where we have the state and the state is going to respond to a situation like this and watching the footage in Italy, which is quite frankly terrifying. I've watched the footage in the hospital today. Uh, We've also just had a news announcement from in London, where, listen to this. This is um, a critical incident at London hospital after surge in coronavirus cases. Basically they've hit capacity. Their ICU Mm. has hit capacity. So if the ICU is at capacity, they're going to have to be at that point where they choose who to treat. If you don't have enough ventilators, you're going to have to give somebody some another option. Perhaps that's some kind of hand ventilator. Or perhaps you don't have a machine. Or perhaps you have to turn around to a 92-year-old and give their machine to a 46-year-old because they've got more chance of survival and... And that's the decisions they're going to have to be making and I've, I've got a friend who works at an icu in australia and he said we're very early now but we are preparing for wartime triage where we are going to have to be choosing about who to give machines to and who we help survive and who we may have to let go and he said it's, he's terrified so we, we are in the situation where we've seen something expand rapidly globally in the space of a few months has gone from patient zero in china to thousands of people, like over a thousand people dying now per 24 hours, I think we've hit that point. Infection rates are obscene. So if the government is going to respond, whilst we don't want infringements on our civil liberties and we want everyone to have personal personal freedom, personal choice, I can still understand why the, the government is thinking, well, we perhaps need to put the army on the streets and say to people, stay home. And this is why, because you're going to get sick and you might make other people sick and and I guess a tough nuance in that is well somebody who's a libertarian might say well I, I observe the non aggression principle I'm not going to go near anybody else and I'm not going to spread this because I don't want to make anyone sick and I'm just going to keep myself to myself but what happens if they get on a bus or go somewhere and they, they leave you know they are infected and infect and they leave you know the virus on the surface for three days and infect somebody else so I very much want to support civil liberties and freedom and not have an extension of the state. But right now, I really understand why some of the governments are doing what they're doing. Does that make Wait, sense? Listen.
1: Absolutely. I, I think too, again, let's keep, since I've already screwed myself by saying that the theme of the conversation is going to be nuanced, let's keep going with this theme, right? Like there's there's a very strong argument if you are kind of a small government oriented person that one of the functions of the state should be to, uh, to be able to uh, exert power in this sort of situation, right? To be able to have effective state power deployed. In fact, Tyler Cowen, who is one of the, probably the most uh, widely read, uh, you know, popular libertarians, right? Marginal revolution. He's not on the fringes of, of intellectual society. He's right in the mainstream, right? He's interviewed everyone. He wrote about this. He has a, a term for it that I'll pull up at some point when you're talking because it's, it's worth looking. But this is part of his argument is that it's not a, a – a, a, it's not mutually exclusive to be a small L libertarian, but also think that this sort of the, the state being able to deploy the right type of power in these situations is correct. Now, the interesting thing is, is what does it look like to be correct? One thing that's been really fascinating for me to watch uh, over the last week so I'm in New York, right? I'm in, uh, in the mm-hmm. Hudson Valley, so I'm outside of New York City. There's been a huge kind of disagreement between Cuomo and de Blasio. De Blasio keeps talking about shelter in place, he wants shelter in place. And Cuomo has been aggressive about that. In every press conference, he said, words matter and he's, he's, you know, so basically New York, for those who haven't been paying attention, has decreased. Uh, on Wednesday, they said that only 50% of the workforce of non-essential uh, businesses could go into work, right? So, uh, you know, this is, and this is after restaurants had gone takeout only, and certain types of businesses had been closed down where there's a lot of, you know, interaction and things like that. But even aside all that, any other business, Wednesday, it was 50%, uh, Thursday, it was 75%. Today, it went to 100%. And he said, this is the the most severe thing, and and he was like, you know, basically the the point that he was making is that shelter in place is a specific term that now refers to an active shooter. It came from uh, when uh, from the nuclear era when it meant literally go to the center of your house and stay there until you hear clear what he's his point was that when we say shelter in place it scares people like we're not in the business of imprisoning people in their homes what we're saying is that what we can do and there's plenty of people who argue that this is still too extreme and from a business perspective but he's like what we can do is say businesses can't operate right now uh and what we can do is we say we can say uh please don't leave your home for anything other than essential but like a a walk is uh, essential for some people's mental health walking your dog your not going to be fine for that, right? Uh, and so it's it's an interesting little tightrope where he's trying to get as much voluntary contribution from people so that there doesn't have to be draconian measures, you know. But at the same time, he kind of went off on young people who aren't taking this seriously. Like so, there's there's this there's this tightrope act, but there there is a uh, a possibility of getting that tightrope act right. I think one thing that I haven't seen from the conversation that's been frustrating me is. Uh, Okay, so so let's play this out. We're talking about what are the real economic impacts of this, and we're talking about how does the state retreat from that authority right later. And it seems very clear to me that the reason that this thing is so deadly is the overwhelming of the healthcare system right it is it is not a, it's That's not just a, you know like it is about the way that the healthcare system gets overwhelmed i just heard of a friend right before this call who lost her nine, 99 year old mother or grandmother because not because of coronavirus but because the hospital wouldn't let her in they didn't have any space for her so like that is, it's a hospital capacity question. The, the, we need a friggin' like a very fast Marshall plan right now for getting all of the medical supplies, for getting the field hospitals, for deploying that full might so that because we will have to resume life, but we're, we need this new infrastructure. And guess what? Like we could be potentially putting people to work, building that infrastructure. Like that's, that is the key thing. And that's the point at which, well, how do we get to transition back to a different life? We have the infrastructure to be able to deal with this as what it is, which is a very virulent but addressable virus.
2: Mm. It's a very, very complicated situation. Um, I mean, do you know what, the other thing? Are we, are we the same age? I can't remember if I'm a bit older. I'm forty-one.
1: I'm thirty-five. So you're
2: thirty-five. So you're a bit younger, but like similar-ish. Um, it's such a strange situation. It's its almost overwhelming in that. I, about two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, I called my father because he's 72 and he's a smoker and has bronchitis. So he is prime candidate for contracting, if he contracts coronavirus, that he would almost certainly need a ventilator and possibly die. You know, he's a prime candidate, candidate because it's a respiratory virus. So I phoned him two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago. Actually, I phoned my brother first. I said, I think we need to put dad into lockdown. And my brother wasn't sure. And about two days later, he agreed. And I said, Dad, now's the time. And he said, I can't. I've got all my golf stuff on. I was like, hold on, Dad. You need to really understand this. And I took him through it. And then I also found my ex-wife's parents and, and did the same. And I think I think I realized how serious this was. Probably a little bit ahead of my friends because of the world we live and work in. Yeah, yeah. We're attached to the news a bit more. We follow it a bit more. But it's this kind of weird kind of spectrum of, Wanting to take it seriously as possible without looking ridiculous to other people who think you're panicking, and I think everybody's eventually going to get to, on the spectrum to the to the extreme end where they realise how serious this is. It's just going to take them a lot of time, but as as we get there, we've got to make some serious decisions. And I don't know if I I, I don't want to be the person who stands there and says, "Well, I think the state should." should take control of us and put the army on the streets and tell us what to do, because we live in this Bitcoin world, whereas if you ever show any form of statism, it's used as an insult against you. Oh, you bloody statist. You're a statist. You're a bootlicker. You're a government-loving statist. Any kind of insult. So you're you're almost questioning yourself, saying, well, I am. I'm thinking, fuck, I, I think there's a lot the state can do right now. I think there's certain things the state can do better than individuals can do on their own right because i believe they just put some enforcement in place and it's gross, and it's scary and it's terrifying and you made a really made a really good use of um language when you said um when they how how does the state retract from this position which is very Mm -hmm. i think you've articulated that perfectly but right now if we were to just give advice to people and tell them what to do. We saw what happened in Nashville or on the beaches in Florida. People are ignoring it, and I just feel like I I almost don't want to have the the state argument now, the libertarian argument now. I want to say what is the best thing we can do. And I'm not going to get over upset by certain actions of the state because just just because so many fucking people are going to die, and I think. I, and then I try and measure it and I, I try and question it to myself and I think, all right, well, if, if freedom is the most important thing to me, civil liberties, then we should give everyone the advice but let everyone have free will to choose what they will do. But does that ultimately lead to many more people dying? Giacomo Mozuka will come and give a very good nuanced argument about why I'm wrong. I just, my gut feel thinks that this is a situation where we have no choice but the state to put into some draconian measures. But I, <laughs> I say it with this kind of Bitcoin of guilt thinking oh, i'm not meant to stand for this i'm meant to be <laughs> against this i'm meant to say no this isn't right and and, and almost certainly a lot of the stuff they're going to do is wrong i think the uk government's initial decision seemed brave and within two days i was like no you got this wrong you fucked that up mm-hmm. i think almost certainly trump has got a, an awful lot wrong and i really don't like his rebranding of the virus as the Chinese virus. I think he's running every press press conference, like a PR exercise in the 2020 election. I don't like that. And that doesn't mean I support China or I'm a CCC bootlicker. I just don't like that. So I think the governments are going to make a lot of fucking mistakes because they're dealing with something unprecedented and it's really, really hard. But at the same time, I, I don't know, I don't feel like I'm in this place that I can give some, I don't know. I don't think now is the time to be arguing over Civil, civil liberties in terms of some of the decisions the state's making now. I think now's the time to say, how do we ensure when this is over that they do retract from these positions, that we don't lose a bunch of freedoms, what well, the limited freedoms we already have, we don't lose them. And I think that's more, a more practical place to approach it from.
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, I think uh, my, my feeling is almost always, and certainly in this case, is that... Everyone gets to have a different voice and a different importance. One of the things that I've always loved about uh, Bitcoiners, much more extreme than I am, whether it's about, uh, about the crypto industry or whether it's about uh, libertarian politics or anything like that, is that they provide a, 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 an, unflapping, uh, an unflappably um, clear pull of the discourse, right? That that is, that is an anchor point that you can go to. That, that, and, and I think that uh, a, a free open society only works if you can have perspectives at both extremes screaming at each other. Now, where I usually find myself is wanting, I, I'm, I tend by nature to be radically more pragmatic than I would like to be even. Like I have this very strong and weird combination of uh, of incredibly uh, kind of frustrated and passionate, but then like want to hone in on the thing that can be addressed so right now, for example i 'm looking at this bill that was happening before coronavirus that is trying to get end to end encryption uh, out of the way right and this has been uh, attorney yep. general Barr has been fighting this fight since since a while ago right it 's been him versus Apple, and Apple has been fighting, but they 've you know they 've couch out in certain ways at certain points uh, but the that's a that is a specific discrete thing right that doesn't really necessarily have to do i think smart people can argue about how much tracking and surveillance is really necessary for this you know and although in some ways i'm much more worried about uh, about the the tracking and surveilling of every citizen via their mobile app, uh, than I am about uh, local police forces enforcing a curfew. Even if I think, like, you know, curfews seem like a weird, you know, choice to me, right? Like, they, in some ways, they, those are different things. So I'm going to be flying the flag of hearing about that that other thing, that specific thing. Um, but you know, I also think that right now there is a little bit of a pick your battles situation in the sense of there are some things that have left the station. Like no one, like we have gone from, uh, 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 (laughs) there, there is no longer any political space for not direct intervention in people's bank accounts in, in this. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think that the biggest reason is that there's also no political will in Congress or the Senate to not bail out companies, but they also, having lived through 2008, know that they can't not bail out regular people and bail out companies as well. Uh, or or they can't bail out companies and not bail out regular people as well. There's no way that anyone will get voted. But perhaps they can, you know, they're, they're very scared to let industries, to let companies die right? Like the, this yeah. is a, this is a system that feels fragile to everyone that they're going to try to preserve with whatever they can. So like us screaming about UBI and things like this or whatever, you know, or, you know, quantitative easing and the money printer, like these are the the new narratives, the new memes. But the reality is, is that this is a situation where we already had an answer to that, which is Bitcoin and participation in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, this crisis is the first one that's happened where there's a voluntary opt-out mechanism, at least on some level. Now we all live in society. So I think it's overstated to say that we're opting out entirely, but there is this other thing, right? So I feel like a lot of this has to do with, uh, with one, picking your battles, two, figuring out where there's actually levers of change to pull. And, uh, and the reality is, is that when, when people are dying, when hospitals are being overwhelmed and when people are losing their jobs, you're not going to win most arguments about not intervening. So I, I, I go far, I go right to the other side of that conversation and say, there will be a time at which... Uh, this has gotten more under control, right? Where the, the healthcare mm-hmm. system has gotten more uh, under control. What do we? Wh- what can we not give up on the way?
2: Yeah, do you know Can I talk about something as well that I still haven't seen the answer for? Because, mm-hmm. so we're at this point now where we're having to put, every, every almost country is going through the same steps, just at a different time. And I'm seeing the US is doing it if you think think each state is more like a country, they're they're going through a similar process whereby it's okay, we've got some infections, okay, the infections are going up, we've had a death. Oh, now we've had double figures deaths, now now the uptick's starting to happen. So the UK is in the, the real uptick right now. Italy is way ahead of everybody, France and Spain, Germany aren't looking great. You know, US is starting to pick up. And and during that process, they go through a you have concerns from the politicians that Initially, they start talking about perhaps we won't have enough ventilators or enough machines. And then they start talking about, okay, we're probably going to have to consider social distancing. And people start to make some of their own choices a little bit of panic buying, maybe telling their parents to lock themselves down. And then the government comes in and says, okay, we need to enforce some social distancing. We're going to close down the schools. Okay, now you can't go to work. Everyone should work from home and now it's full lockdown. Every, every country appears to be following a very similar trajectory with all mm-hmm. of this. which is, And the reason they're following that trajectory is because of the, the infection rates are so rapid that, as you said earlier, the health systems are coming under so much pressure. What I don't understand is, and what need, nobody has explained is, how do we come out of this? Because even if in... Say say the UK can reduce the, flatten the curve. We've heard this, <laughs> flatten the curve. Say they can do it in 12 weeks. or even 16. We've got three to four months of lockdown. Suppose they flatten the curve. Then what? <laughs> what do you do there? If, we, if we're talking about not having a vaccine for, say, 18 months, even a year, let's say even a year, what happens between month three and four and month 12? Are, are a handful of people allowed to go to work? are is specific towns allowed to go to work? Do we have to have in some place some way of tracking it? who has an infection and who they're coming to touch with and if a new infection happens then it, then all, anyone who's coming to touch with that person has to be locked down again and if you do that we're going to have schizophrenic businesses that pop up and shut down very quickly so that's not going to be operational. We're never going to get children back to school so it feels like realistically we're in this until there's a vaccine I can't see how we come out of it. And I'll be honest, this is the first time in my life, I've actually been really scared, not personally, just more scared generally for people. And what's going to happen over the next 12 months, because you've got entire industries of I the airline industry is, is done right now, pretty much. The the crew, nobody's going to go on a cruise right now. Hotels are screwed. And then all the knock on businesses from there. What about the restaurants in the hotels? What about the companies that supply the parts to the airlines? What about the engineers who work for the airlines? What about the what about the airports themselves? What about the taxi drivers that take people from the airport home? The knock-on effect from this, I, I think, is frightening. I don't and I don't know the answer, but I just don't see. Are we are we in this? Are we all locked down now for a year?
1: Well, I do think so. A couple of thoughts. First is that there. Uh, there is going to be some precedent, right? We can watch how Asia is trying to manage this and see what works. And the thing that's clear is that they've redesigned, I mean, they were already way ahead of us on this, but the the you don't go into a building right now in Singapore without having your temperature checked, right? It is just a totally different experience of life where everything is about controlling potential uh Outbreaks, right, and being able to get that cluster. There's still, I think, there's still really good questions about school and how that's working and everything else. But I think that it's going to be uh, an extreme amount of vigilant data gathering and information. Um, so that's kind of like part part one. I mean, but but at least if nothing else, the the uh, there will be some. We have a couple months to of of we're behind by enough time to see what's working right they i mean for better or worse, they get to be the guinea pigs uh you know in this um I think the the second part is you know we've largely because it's really i mean uh, let's be clear about what our timeline is it has really only been a few weeks since uh, the U.S. started to take this seriously. February 24th was literally the first day that markets reacted to this at all in the U.S. I know because it was the day that Caitlin Long announced Avanti and I interviewed her and we were talking about how the markets had just started to react for the first time. February 12th, meanwhile, was all-time highs, right? So 12 days between between that and, and, and less trading days, obviously. Uh, and now we're only, we are only, <laughs> we're at the end right now of the first full week where the U.S. president acknowledged the severity of this thing and wasn't just calling it uh, another flu, right? If you go back not to, to to two Mondays ago, right? So four days ago and then seven days before that, he put out a tweet about how the flu kills so many more people, right? It wasn't until Wednesday of that week that Tom Hanks got it, the NBA shut down and Trump got on TV and said, we actually have to do something about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're, we're really still like in the US, we're like seven working days, you know, nine days total into the the leadership of the country not being... Totally insane about this thing, uh, and we've done. Uh, it's almost like I'm watching this weird thing. Like this is a. a to me, this is a, a health issue that creates a financial markets issue that creates an economic issue that cr- potentially creates a geopolitical issue, and it's almost like we're watching these things. Like fi- so, you know, people are finally taking the health issue seriously. However, we're dealing right now with the. Uh, with the still testing dimension of it, right? Not the not the the overwhelm the healthcare system yet, which is what's right around the corner, which is why people are so scared, and they should be from an infrastructure perspective. Uh, with the financial markets, obviously we've seen a huge sell off, but the the Fed is using every tool that it has. The federal government is obviously using every tool that it has to try to keep this in check. What we haven't experienced yet is the economic knock on, really, right? Because again, people yeah. haven't been out of work for long, uh, you know. If, again, if you go back to Cuomo, he went from fifty percent of the workforce to seventy-five percent of the workforce to one hundred percent over three days. He knew the math. He knew exactly how much this was going to go. He, gave, he used that time, I believe, to get people more and more used to the idea, right? Rather than going zero to one hundred and scaring the shit out of people, that was a specific psychological tactic, you know. Which, which honestly, I applaud him for. I think in some ways this is the correct call, although maybe a week earlier, or whatever, right? So you've got you, you've got the the just the beginnings of the economic hardship that this is going to represent. And we have never had anything this fast, you know, and like the, the only hope is that it's, uh, you know, someone called it World War Three for 90 days. And that's that would be the best case scenario where by July fifteenth, when US taxes are due, and you know, that we actually have gotten the healthcare system under control, people can start to go back to work. And the big money printing machine, you know, ha- has helped people get through that 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 part, or whatever it is, right, people uh, have, have done it together. I'm more worried because I see uh, like you, I think that it's the it's it's everything that it's so much more than just the twenty percent of twenty percent of people are in the service industry, right? So you've already got that, but there's a million more things that aren't accounted for. That and and you, I think that you come across this like it, you just think for a little bit, right? Like you know we've joked about this before, but uh, our, our family's favorite hobby is Magic the Gathering. There are thousands and thousands of local game stores all around the country who are for tons of different games, but they're anchored around that. Who are just cooked, there's no they're are already hanging on by a thread because they're from a different time, right? Where we went mm-hmm. to stores and, you know, played games together rather than doing it online, which is so much more convenient. Like the number of that that companies in that space, small businesses that are going to shut down is going to be enormous. And like, I don't know, card stores, like your local bath and body shop that's just someone who had a dream, like florists, you name it. You know what I mean? Like the I think we haven't even begun to grapple with what that might mean. Now the the thing that I think that we're extra not grappling with though, is the, uh, what might happen geopolitically globally, right? Like we are already at the the tail end of the U.S. designed post-World War II order where uh, we are retreating. We are aggressively retreating from the world, you know? I mean, this has been uh, uh, Trump, uh, you know, I mean, it, he's continuing things. He's accelerated it certainly, but this has been uh, going on for a while Is a retreat from the world. And one as of the that few things happens, I actually
2: like. I was going to say that's one of the few things I actually like about what Trump's been doing. He seems yeah, to want to get away from wars and uh, intervention, which is one of the few things I actually admire about
1: him. Well, it's, I, I I agree. I am I am no fan of war, but I do think too that there is a there are untold consequences, right? In terms of like when you start to unwind uh, an order where uh, everything is interconnected from a, a global shipping, what you do is you create a scenario where all of a sudden there are uh, really rich countries and really poor countries, not based on where they sit in the global order, but based on their actual resources. And it does not look, I mean, this is, I, I'm literally just a parrot for Peter Zehan right now, who just wrote, United nations. Um, But this is my background too. This is where when I, when I first, you know, I was in global change systems and things like that. I thought I was going to spend my life working in Israel, Palestine or Uganda and Rwanda. And, uh, and I think that we, we haven't grappled that except maybe a little in the, like even the Chinese virus thing, which I I feel very similar to you about. (sighs) The, the, the cynical brilliance of this guy when it comes to manipulating the news cycle is unfathomable. And uh, this is, I thought for sure, the in, in, incalculably bad response that he has had to coronavirus was going to be his undoing, but I think the ability to shift it to a us versus them at a time when everyone's angry it plays right into the to the rights narrative that liberals are just you know uh, social justice warriors who are concerned about racism. Like this is a thing that is basically definitionally racist but that's not the point. He's not doing it as a dog whistle racism thing. That's just a fun byproduct, right? The reason that he's doing this is, a, uh, is two things. One is that the CCP is in a fight for their life because the Chinese citizens have never been as closer to, uh, to rebelling as they are now after this situation. And so they are desperately trying to put that narrative uh, of the U.S. actually starting it, right? So uh, there's one, there's a, uh, a geopolitical brinksmanship being played there, signals the rest of the world. That's one thing that's going on. Now, I think that there's a lot of uh, very smart, savvy geopolitical thinkers who think that uh, fought, like responding to that in kind is a really stupid strategy. So I'm not commenting on the, the the quality of the strategy. I'm just saying that's part of it. The second part of it is this fucker has to. Excuse me, listeners, but he has to <laughs> uh, he has to uh, he has to shift the narrative from literally like I said two Mondays ago, he was saying it was as bad as the flu to i've always taken this seriously, and in fact, if you go back, the one thing he did do is close the borders to China real fast because that was fine with him right that was play, played into what he did. He wants everyone to yeah. say like it was a Chinese virus, I closed the borders to China, we did everything, you know, like that, and and it plays perfectly to his political base. It's an easier, you know, it's an easier narrative than me in October going back and showing, well, like this was the death toll at this time and this is what they said and this was the death toll, like no one's gonna care, they're just gonna, like when the the other option is Chinese virus,
2: it was their fault, right? So I find Ben Shapiro an interesting character. I, I disagree with a lot of what he says. I think he his delivery sometimes is a little bit sinister and i think he likes to be angry about things but i also admire some of the things he does and the way, the way things he explains and one of the things i like he does with trump is he will say about the things he thinks he's done well and he'll criticize it
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, one of the real problems i have with politics right now is the um yeah you know, i said it on twitter the other day somebody was like uh uh trump derangement syndrome but there is a trump defensive syndrome whereby anything Mm -hmm. he does however agrarious can be defended and i think the most interesting people who are able to politically observe and criticize and compliment and give credit where due to both sides rather than just say always you know like oh that's just the liberal left-wing way or just say uh, oh 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 or, or just that uni, unilateral hatred for, for Trump. I, I can't, neither work for me. And the reason they don't work because it's just completely intellectually dishonest. There is no world which suits... There is no world where everything is correct right or everything's correct left because it doesn't account for different personality types and different economic positions. And I think the most intellectually honest thing you can ever do is, is be fair and be critical. And I was... I, I, I've defended Trump sometimes and which by the way, in the UK is a really hard thing to do. <laughs> Trump, It's really hard. You're not talking about 50% of the nation. You're talking about 5% of the nation who will agree with you. Everyone, thinks yeah, yeah. Honestly, everyone thinks he's a moron. I tried it with my brother and my dad over, over Christmas and my brother refused to talk to me. And, um, and I said to him, well, the thing about Trump is I don't love him, but I, I think he would, I'd rather him as the leader of the US than Hillary if I had to choose just because I think it, it, Hillary is is crooked and, and, and evil. Whereas I think Trump is just at times stupid. But I, so I I said the other day, when he called it the China virus, I said the rebranding, I, I think I think there's a disgrace. And the reason I think it's a di- disgrace is for a couple of reasons. I think firstly, it's I think all his press conferences are runs PR exercises.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So him well, that's, to be calling, that's for sure. That- yeah. Yeah. You know, partway through one of them, somebody said something about Joe Biden. He said, yeah, sleepy Joe this. I just think it's so immature, pathetic, a time when he's addressing the nation and the biggest crisis the US may ever face, the the world may ever have faced. Um, at, at, a, at a time where he needs to be addressing the nation, he's putting his little childish dicks in about Joe Biden. And I th- I think that was pathetic. I think calling it the China virus was totally a deflection exercise. And the really important thing for me, and I would have been equally critical if this had been a UK leader, is that during the the biggest crisis a country has ever faced, or one of the top crises a country has ever faced, that you are still entirely focused on your personal reputation. That right now, all you are clearly thinking about is, will I the 2020 election firstly if it goes ahead let's just assume it's going to go ahead and by the way three months ago it was a slam dunk i, I think even a month ago it was a slam dunk he was mm-hmm. winning the next election mm-hmm. i don't think even biden or bernie sanders would have the ability to to remove him i think this i think this coronavirus and what happens puts under threat i think it makes it more debatable about whether he'll win the next election because he's gonna be judged entirely on this. And it might be out of his hands. You know, he might have done the best things possible. He might have put in the best policies possible straight away. Either way, a lot of people are gonna die and there's gonna be an economic crisis. And because of that, people might hold him accountable, even though he couldn't have done anything anyone else had done. But for him at this time, to be using the most important time in the country as a, as a continual and very obvious PR exercise, I think that's disgraceful because I, I understand the small amount of gonna happen, but for each time for him to come out and say, we've done the perfect job. We've got, we've got these people, they're amazing, they're tremendous, they're doing a the perfect job. I, I think it's great to talk people up, but, but every time he refers back to himself, he said, well, I did the best job possible here. He's, he's got universal belief that everything he does is perfect and right, without any self-awareness. Uh, and I just think it's a dangerous time to be starting a, a war of words with the chinese and just the response because if people listen to this they might give some of the response i got on twitter firstly they said no you just want to you're just a typical uh, liberal left focus on racism okay firstly i'm not lefty secondly i never even want to mention racism this to me was never about racism this to me was about leadership and i just thought it demonstrated weak leadership also people were saying well such and such at the ccp had blamed the us i said fine and turn around and say, there's been accusations in the press from, from X who said this is a, a US engineered virus. This is obviously ridiculous. Um, we won't entertain such knowledge and we will be speaking to their ambassador. I think there's more mature and better ways to deal with it than just to start going, the China virus. Like, like, like he runs this every single policy and every decision is like, how can he meme it? And I don't know, dude. I just personally, it's actually, where, where has he grown in my estimation? As somebody where I just, I thought he was an idiot when he first came in. And after four years, I thought, you know what? He's not as bad as I thought. He thought he's, done, he, he's done some good things there. And I can understand why people like him. Right now, I, 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 he's, lost, he's lost some credibility with me. Which I know some people who go, we well, don't fucking matter. Who cares? You, you're Brit and you're a nobody. But at the same time, I can imagine others will be feeling this as well
1: no I think I mean listen I think that the hard thing in American politics right now which spills into politics everywhere is that it is uh, it is internecine warfare there are there are religious cults on both sides and if you are someone who, feels like can can likes people from both sides has different opinions from both sides it's not even center unfortunately center is not a really good term uh cent, it's more like a, a a bouncer right like you're like a ping pong mm-hmm. ball because there's got like people are big and diverse and their experiences make them feel different things you know and it is uh you know i i think that's that's the challenge for people is that when when everything becomes politicized, but how how can it not be? You know? Um let me ask you a question actually, because I, I wanna yeah, yeah. I want to touch on this a little bit. Um you just spent uh you just had a big trip where you went to places that were having a hard time of it even before uh before the coronavirus. Um mm-hmm. how how have the last couple weeks well one like you know what what was that trip about and what 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 were your, some of your takeaways, but how has the last couple of weeks of seeing the world respond to coronavirus recontextualized it for you? Like I, I that's the type of thing where I had trips that I took that I thought meant one thing, but in, in retrospect, the thing that I learned was very different, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Good, good question. So the, the transition from having a Bitcoin podcast, having two podcasts was very much about wanting to expand outside of just being able to talk to people about Bitcoin. I did it a few times on the Bitcoin podcast, but there were subjects I wanted to touch on. And, and so I launched the other one, Defiance. and Really, that was just to for me to learn, you know, as an education process for me, but also, yeah, just to expand outside of the Bitcoin. And what I found very quickly in doing Defiance and traveling, because I used to travel to cities where I could cover Bitcoin and Defiance. What I realized traveling was that actually the defiance stuff is sometimes more visual. It's, it's things you need to see. You know, you need to visually see what is Hong Kong. I can do an interview with somebody about Hong Kong, but really what's going to be much more effective and much more powerful is a video of people protesting and maybe short snappier interviews with people there. So I realized that actually defiance needs to be a, at least a film brand alongside it, potentially only a film brand. Perhaps it isn't a podcast in the future. That I don't know. So I just, and I also just wanted to become a filmmaker myself, just ambition wise. Yeah, you know, I really enjoy doing the podcast. I've really enjoyed doing the specials, like the one on Mt. Gox. And in doing Mt. Gox, I realized, so I'm going off on a tangent, but bear with me. It all comes back together. Doing the Mt. No, Gox, I realized.
1: Well, You know what? You know what we're doing? You know what we're doing right now? We're basically doing the thing that, like, you know all, all of our elected leaders are now advising us to which is like the way that you deal with social distancing is you just like call up your friends do a video chat and talk about <laughs> yeah. things that you wouldn't have normally talked about so for anyone anyone yeah. who's listening like treat it as such I, when i do my intro for the show i'll make sure to make that point that it's not like we're gonna go over the recent price action and, and what it all means <laughs> it's definitely not that but so so go off on any tangent is my point you-
2: but yeah so when did when the mount gox series straight away afterwards i wanted to do it again because it was just a sequential set of interviews it was six interviews actually what i really wanted to do was research Mm -hmm. the story create a narrative and an arc, do the interviews knit them together and and Mm -hmm. run it like a documentary and i've been working on one about bitcoin as well which i'm deep into and The natural progression is i can produce audio documentaries that's fine but i'd like to produce video documentaries just a personal personal ambition so i bought all the equipment all the camera equipment and i decided i was going to head back to south america because i i really wanted to go to venezuela because i could do two things i could cover bitcoin because it's always seen as a bitcoin use case and i could cover the economic crisis but as i was going there i was like well i'll go to Colombia. i'll go to bolivia and i'll go to chile i'll do them all together So I went out there with this intention of just starting filming and making some film work. And then I been talking to this uh, producer slash camera operator for a while. And he said, look, I'll come out with you. So I was like, fine, I'll pay for you. And it was really just meant to be a test. we go out to these four countries, film a bunch of stuff, see what we've got at the end of it. We struck gold a few times. We got very lucky with what we stumbled across and the content we were able to make. But what, what, resonated for me it was like two things came together at the same point somebody had said to me you're going to really have to figure out what it is you're making pete and why you're making it what's your angle you know what is it about you that people should watch your videos and what you care about and that was a like really stuck with me i was like yeah you're right i can't just film shit and put it out there you know what is it i do care about and i know like in my heart i know it's human stories like whenever this shit's going off i just care about the human stories at the back of it, and to give a good example of that is just that having been out to Turkey and Greece, with the border. Um, I think in, in that situation, everyone's got a valid argument. The the, the uh, Turkish government got a valid argument that they've got three point seven million migrants in the country. That's a lot of pressure. How many can they take? And I think the Greek government are right when they turn out and say, "Look, we've already taken a million in. We can't take any more." And I think the, the people who live in Germany or Sweden who've experienced mass social unrest from the integration of migrants have got a valid argument saying, this hasn't worked out well for us. Yet, it doesn't matter who is right, in the middle of all this, there are a bunch of people who are fearful or don't want to live in their homes. Let's let's move away from the economic migrants. Let's just deal with the people who wanna leave Iraq because the country is a basket case since the US war. Or let's talk about the people who've left Somalia, which is a very dangerous country. Well, let's talk about the people who've left, maybe uh, Burundi, or well, just all these different countries. Whoever's right about their economic argument, there is a group of people here that were all stuck on the border between Greece and Turkey, living in a field where women have no access to sanitary products, they've got babies they're feeding, they're all living on one or two meals handed out a day, they're trying to leave a country that doesn't want them, trying to get into another country that is firing tear gas at them. But these are just people, right? And, I, and that's the point I'm trying to get to. I wanted to make films about people, just the real struggles that some people will go through. But what I found is it doesn't matter where I go, in the, day, the, the pattern is the same and, and the stories are the same. In that there's this ongoing battle of left V right, rich V, v porn. It, and this is where I end up questioning some of the libertarian stuff. Or, you know, when people say Bitcoin fixes this, because I don't believe in every single scenario, Bitcoin does fix everything. Um, there is certainly a situation right now where, if there is too much inequality and too much corruption, you will see the the poorer poorer people tend to rise up, who tend to be a little bit more left wing because. They tend to look at the world and say it's a bit unfair it's a bit unfair because because we're poor we don't have healthcare care we can't we don't have education so we think that should be provided because that's how they feel and we've somehow got to try and find a way of getting this balance right because if if we continue to have unequal societies it doesn't matter what you politically think is right here it doesn't matter if you th- think these people are socialists and socialism is bad you are still going to have violent uprisings and people are still going to die and and I'm seeing this pattern, the same argument, it doesn't matter if I'm in Santiago, Chile, in Venezuela, or in, or in San Francisco. You have got the same problem of inequality leading to problems, and you've got people feeling left, left out by society, or feeling that it's just a bit unfair because of, because all the leaders are corrupt, and, and you know, what are they meant to have? and that pattern i'm seeing everywhere like everywhere i go and it's just a different story told in a different way in venezuela it is because maduro is uh, uh, essentially a ruthless dictator who took over from chavez who himself slipped into authoritarianism after his social program started to fail but you've still got a rich feed poor corruption problem there it's the same in chile and i think i think we have very similar situations in Europe and the US and I, I I don't know it's just it's what i'm seeing everywhere i think oh, that the mm-hmm. sorry t- t- sorry i've gone on there a bit uh, I, I, I don't i can't fully articulate it always because i'm still trying to figure it out in my head but you also ask how, how does what's happening now recontextualize that i'm not sure it does but but what i what i'm expecting is those situations or those countries with the highest inequality and the poorest countries are going to suffer even worse through this situation because what's going to happen is their health care systems are going to be overrun quicker they're going to have um higher numbers of people who can't get access to the health care system they're going to have people whose health is might maybe slightly worse because because those who are poorer tend tend to have poorer health generally and i know it's a massive generalization and ultimately, I think in all of these situations, the more wealthy you are, the more wealthy you are, the easier coronavirus is going to be for you to survive, because you're going to be able to get food, you're going to be able to get access to health, and I just think it's going to disproportionately affect poorer people. So if if, if anything, that's what I'm observing.
1: So in 2010, Haiti had uh, the huge, it was a magnitude 7.0 earthquake that was hugely devastating, right? And the reason that an earthquake like that is so much more devastating for Haiti than it would be in say San Francisco now, right? Who's due Mm -hmm. for one, is that what kills in an earthquake isn't uh, the earth shaking, it's buildings falling down and fires starting, right? And in a place where there is uh, immense infrastructure, even, even if you're dealing with the same, same magnitude of earthquake, two wildly different outcomes. And mm-hmm. I tend to agree that my fear with, uh, with, one of my fears geopolitically with the coronavirus is that, like, I just saw that there was a big increase in South Africa. Um, overnight and, uh, you know, South Africa is more, uh, has more infrastructure than most parts of the continent, but it's still, uh, it's not most of Europe, right. It's certainly not Lombardy, Italy, which has one of the best health systems, you know, in the world. Um, it is, uh, it is a very different thing. And I think that if the, if the equivalent of buildings falling down in this case is the health system. Uh, coming under more pressure than it can, and the ripple effects not just from people who die from coronavirus but other people who can 't mm-hmm. get treatment for other things you know the, the death rate doesn 't stop because of coronavirus you know the birth rate doesn 't stop because of coronavirus um, I think it, it it does have the potential to disproportionately uh, impact people and I think that what you 're feeling and seeing around the world certainly i 've observed this as well, like one of the so uh, the reason that I thought that I was going to go spend my life doing conflict or post, uh, post-conflict reconstruction was the, the jarring uh, disconnect between the feeling that everything was fine in the 90s and the Cold War was over and it was great, and the fact that it was it was the bloodiest decade since the 40s when it comes to violent conflict, right? Um in terms of numbers of people who were actually killed, and how how like how could those those two narratives didn't like exist, right? But most of the world post post Soviet War has been in this very we are in a very weird liminal in between scenario and have been for a while. And the challenge is that and going back to your left versus right point, um, the the problem in situations of desperation and inequality is power. And power seizes whatever narrative works based on that. You know, what what does what does left authoritarianism and socialist fascism? How does that look practically different than than right authoritarianism and, and fascism? The answer is that it it doesn't really. It's just what's the narrative that's useful on on the way. And uh, and I think again, having that sort of uh, having that sort of nuance and the ability to. Um, the ability to speak in those terms rather than just throw around. I mean, the problem is that we've, we've almost, uh, we've lionized political words, right? We've made them capitals instead of lower cases. And they come with a preset of ex, uh, expectations that limit our ability to understand, right? It's, it's easier to write off uh, a, a, a an entire country for being socialist than understanding the context in which people lived that made, Uh, ceding authority to people over their lives. Like most people want to live their lives uninterrupted. This was my experience. And I, you know, so my my formative years were spent basically between the Middle East and in East Africa. And the the number one thing over and over again is that if you get into people that have lived with conflict for a long time, they don't speak in these same uh, generic political terms. They speak in terms of, you know, what allows them to to live and move on with their lives right and that's that can be a dangerous situation that's why mubarak was in power in egypt for 25 years is that he was unbelievably good at more or less people were fine they just didn't have autonomy over this one part of their life right i was in egypt when george bush was elected and uh, and you know I was in a program basically because I was uh, I was studying there. We had two two types of kids like the lefty save the world kids and the going into the CIA got to study my enemy while I learn Arabic kids. And uh, and all of us were friends because we're human beings and human beings can be friends with people who disagree even though the the, the media tells us differently now. And uh, on the way home we had gotten a hotel suite to watch the election results. People couldn't believe that this guy was going to get elected again and, and he did obviously. And uh, and it was really really late. We saw those results at like 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. And we were taking a cab home, and the taxi driver was going out of his way to to tell us that he understood that we didn't have any control over this, and not to feel bad. Meanwhile, we actually did, right? But the the experience of uh, of having any actual hand in electing your leader was so foreign to them. Now, this is obviously this is seven years before Tahrir Square and and uh, and the, the Arab Spring. Um, so it's different. It changed uh, a little bit, although you know the the legacy of that is still playing out. But the 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 point of this is to say that everywhere I've ever been, what people care most about is do I get to live my life? Am I scared for my kids? Like, full stop. And everything else. And that's why that's the the danger in that comes when people can come with promises and say, "Seed this authority, see this control to me, and I will
2: give you more of that." You know? Yeah, I think the. I don't wanna say the one good thing that can come out of this. What I hope is when we come out of this, I think we've got two choices, right? As p- people, nations, politicians, we've got a chance to, to reassess how we got here and the mistakes we've made and try and, and, try and learn from this and, and have a better world, or it just gets worse. My fear is it will, get, it will actually get worse. But, but can we learn from this? because I'm disenfranchised from the political process because it's so divisive. It's like you either agree with me or you agree with everything that they agree with and, and you're bad. I didn't vote in the election because I couldn't vote for either Boris or Corbyn because they were, they were just so, so poles apart. But there were so many things in the world I'm, I'm also questioning. And I think as a, as a parent, you question it more, especially as your kids can ask questions. Yeah. And, and, and you can influence them. Like I've, my son says things now that he only says because he's my son. Like when the government recently, a few days ago announced their massive spending plans, he was like, but dad, if they keep printing money like that, it just, the money's going to be worth less. Right? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, you buy more Bitcoin. Like that's all come from him, him hearing me talk about it. But it also makes me realize that if I talk to him about politics, I can really influence them. If I just sit there and say, you, know, you need to be conservative and the conservatives are better because they focus more on hard work, whereas the, uh, the labor are more socialist and they want to help everyone and make everyone's life easy. He's going to come out thinking potentially that poor people are lazy. We should stop helping them. And, and, and that worries me as well. And I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really articulate. This is the kind of thing I, I wish I'd had some time to articulate and think about exactly what I wanted to say, but all I know is is that if I used to have a certain way of viewing the world when I used to sit on my couch, sit at home and live in Bedford and follow the news and talk to my friends. And I would, I would pick, almost pick a side like a football team that I want to be on. And now as I've traveled the world and met, I've been so fortunate to do this and met so many amazing people and people in difficult situations. I, I don't now. I don't want to be on a side because I realize most of the time the side you're on is a lot of it's got to do with where you were born. You know, the the fortune of being born in a country like the UK versus being born in Iraq, I don't know, pre Gulf War two. I mean that's what a fortunate position to be in. And a lot of what we have is just down to just pure luck and chance. And I think we're in a world now where we've got too much about I want and me and focus on me and not enough about not enough about the empathy for others, and enough regard for human life, enough regard for really shitty situations people have to live through. God, I'm probably sounding like a really soft left-wing <laughs> liberal. I, I mean, I
1: but yeah. isn't but isn't that but isn't that a problem when wanting to encourage like empathy and understanding the lived experience of people is relegated to one side or another? By the way, that used to be a small yeah. C conservative position. If, if you look back right like historically before the you know whatever that that was a traditionally conservative position you know uh so th- this is the problem is that these things they there is inherently a dynamic between uh, leaders and the people who need to back them. Where it's it's a it's a process of narrative making and and freeing yourself from that. And I think there's a there's a liberation to existing in a way where you're not afraid to not know things and you're not afraid to change your opinion. And unfortunately, nothing nothing in society really rewards you for that. But I, I I'm I'm interested at least, and part of the reason that I spend so much time creating these media spaces is like I feel like I had a a, a choice. Uh, when it comes to the crypto space or political space or whatever like it is very clear the path to engagement is picking a tribe always and just being the best at shouting that tribe's message. And this is all, by the way, this is not a Bitcoin or Ethereum thing, although that it plays out a little bit like that, but honestly, crypto is, I think, light years ahead of most industries when it comes to this stuff. It just feels intense because we're in it. But like, if you think like left versus right identity politics and shit makes Bitcoiners versus Ethereum kids look like absolutely nothing. And, you know, for 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 me though, like I was, I, I you know, I, I just I am firmly committed to this uh to creating spaces where you get to say like this is this is my incredibly strong intense opinion based on what i know now but if you got something else whether it's new facts or a new way of looking at things like bring it on and i'm not scared of that conversation because you disagreeing doesn't fuck with who i am it doesn't hurt my soul it it is an interesting thing where maybe i'll learn from that you know or maybe i'll think you're terrible and you know,
2: <laughs> you're just talking about the Roger Ailes playbook, right? Fox News, Roger Ailes, when, when he came in and he formed Fox News, you know, his strategy, he said, let's just be conservative.
1: Uh-huh. Let's
2: be conservative. Let's focus on Republican issues. And then we get 60% of the population. Yeah. You know, because if we, if, if we do what CNN is doing and you know, MSNBC is doing, then we're fighting for the same audience. We can have all of this audience. And, and therefore, and Fox News, for me it's an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment of a TV channel because it is never impartial in any way at all about any decision of Trump or the Republicans. It can never step back and go, do you know what? This is wrong. We shouldn't be speaking like this or, or, or these kinds of policies are wrong. It's every single thing he does, they support. And that, for me, is a really sad reflection on the world because what it does, it does divide us all and it puts us all in separate camps of hate. You know, it's not, its not what are the, what are the, what are the reasons that Trump should be president ahead of Joe Biden? What, what can he do better? What, what can we learn from this? No, let's hate Joe, sleepy Joe. Let's, let's humiliate him. Let's really fucking humiliate him and, 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 and let's create hate for liberals and let's get the liberals. And by the way, they do it the other way. And Let's get the liberals hate themselves. Let's all just fucking hate each other. And, and go to war and then want to win our election. And then for four years, we're just going to laugh at you and create memes about you. Honestly, it's not its not how I want to live in the world anymore. Uh, and in some ways is why I'm rejecting politics and, and stepping away from it, or it's, it, I'm setting a new standard of what I expect from politicians. And you're right, you know, we're in the co- content space. I could very easily be a Bitcoiner who's like, I'm Bitcoin and I'm Bitcoin only, fuck this day. I'm all about freedom, civil liberties. I, I, but I can't do that because, you know, I, I Firstly, not everyone. I, I don't believe anarcho-capitalism. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not convinced that creates a better world, a nicer world, or a safer world. It potentially creates a crazier world where it's all for himself, and everyone has to own a gun. And I don't want guns in the UK. I just don't. I, I, I appreciate why you have them in the US, and I've I've come to learn about it. But I, I don't want that situation. So, I don't know. I. I, I th- I tend to get in a lot of fights or shout out on Twitter because I don't follow <laughs> the Bitcoin narrative all the time. I don't. I just don't always agree with everything. This kind of, this kind of narrative where, where you have to be this anarcho-capitalist. I think, you've got, I think it's immature, actually, and I think it's impractical. I think it's much more mature to just try and say, look, we do live in a world in a state. How do we make it better? Like what Eric Voorhees said to me when I said about I can't see this world of libertarianism. He said, we don't need to. The starting point is less government. Let's just try and have 5% less government and see where we get. And then another 5%. And does that make it a world? And that, I I think that's a much more mature and practical place to go. But just to sit there and, you know, we're going to have the armies on the streets in the UK probably probably within a week. I don't want to just go, it's just bad because it's authoritarianism. I want to just have a fair debate and say, hold on, is this a good thing? Could this actually save lives? And can we retract from it? And, and, and will this be a good short-term measure? And, and and that's something I'm really struggling with right now because, of, and if anything, people are going to go, oh, you're a snowflake or you've got no bollocks. You're not, going to, you're, not, you're not really willing to take a side. You're just sitting on the fence. And I don't think it's that I'm sitting on the fence. I think I'm genuinely concerned about how we've got to where we've got to and, and how we debate these issues. Yeah.
1: I also... It's, it's, no, it's weird times. I mean, that, I, like, I am, uh, I'm like, um, unfortunately, the question I ask uh, every person I've had on for the last couple of weeks has been, you know, where are you kind of in a optimism or pessimism cycle? And for me, you know, my answer is, um i'm i like the the short-term optimism is that like at least literally this is we're at the end of the first week where everyone was acknowledging this is a real thing right it's literally been only we have one full week on on our on our docket of of actually acknowledging it that's short-term optimistic short-term pessimistic is that i i think that it's I think that we're accepting, we're in the acceptance phase that there's going to be some disruption. We haven't yet accepted for how long it's going to be disrupted. And we haven't probably really dealt with the economic ramifications for for just regular people, not just stock markets. And I also think that we haven't even begun to ex- experience or understand the, the long-term geo, geopolitical issues that come out of this. Um, if there is a, a cause for some amount of Long term optimism. It's that when you have, when the world gets turned upside down, you can either reconstruct it exactly as it was, or you can try to find new narratives, new stories, new tribes, new ways to organize tribes that don't match the old way of thinking. And you know, it's it's not a nothing signal. I actually, I joked on Twitter this morning. I said, one of my top five thoughts during this crisis is, wait, I agree with who? Uh, and it was actually in the context of Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson going hard on uh, on Burr and Kelly Loeffler and a couple others about the potential that they use privilege information about uh, to, to get out of the stock market, you know, when they were publicly talking- She's been, she's been fighting fighting for her whole life. This is a very complicated, so here's oh. the nuance side. Immensely complicated question because you have to figure out like, does she actually have any control over her money? And it, there's a much larger question about how politics should deal with having assets that are outside the market because politicians are going to have advanced information on almost every scenario. Yeah. Secondly, secondly, like look back at all of our conversations on Bitcoin Twitter since the end of January. It wasn't like this was only politicians who knew how bad this thing could be. We all oh, made yeah. decisions our personal finances. So those are the sides that are kind of like it's overblown and people are looking for someone to blame. And I do think people are looking for someone to be angry on the flip side and why people are angry. And I believe legitimately angry is that when you spend uh, six weeks telling people publicly that it's just the flu and that it's nothing and that we're doing a great job and it's all contained and it's not a thing to worry about and keep going to work. And then meanwhile, you are making an entirely different set of decisions for your life, if that's actually the case, that's just, it's, it's not just hypocrisy, it's lying and, in the, and underlying all of this is the endangerment of the public, right? Which is, I think is the, for me, the biggest issue. Like, I don't care mm. that $3 million was moved uh, although I think it is a little a little fucked and hypocritical, what I care about is that you spent six weeks endangering the lives of people because I just heard from a friend that they lost their ninety nine year old grandmother because she couldn 't get in, and maybe that would have happened no matter what, but if we'd started building you know field hospitals and gotten ventilators and all the sort of things that we needed six weeks ago, like maybe it wouldn 't and so I think uh but, but anyways, like I said, two people who I basically disagree with on almost everything, Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson, uh, hmm. were both very uh, like hardcore about this. You know, now I don't pay attention to them enough to know if they have other beef with these people, and this is just a convenient media thing, either. So it's not so much that I'm like, go those guys now. You know, although you're, you know, you you had some uh, some interesting things to say about about Ben Shapiro at least. It's more just that I think that living in a world where you're not going to cut off something that someone says, because you think in advance that you don't agree with them is a, is a weirdly healthy place to be. Uh, I think if one that is also, uh, can feel destabilizing sometimes because you're out of the, out of the path. So I don't know how to, uh, as we reconstruct and re-architect the new world, which I, I do believe that this is like a fucking forest fire for, uh, for us. Um, but, I, I I hope that we can, my my fear is that it just does the same thing that happens in power vacuums, which is authoritarianism. My hope yeah. is that we have a a chance to kind of organize it differently.
2: Yeah. I think that's a really good place to end it, to be honest, because I don't want to yeah. add to that. I think, I think you've just given a summary that, that and I, I, you've kind of re my point, that is, and I, I'm just going to repeat what you said earlier is I think it's with, I think it's only natural that we're going to see an overreach of the government right now, right now. And we're going to see this globally. And back to what you said is how do they retract from that position? Because it might be hard for them through the temptations of power and corruption, but rather than trying to fight what they're doing now, because we can't, how do we, how do we make it vocal? How do we ensure, as we come out the back end of this, that we don't lose our civil liberties because if they if they're using our phones to track us right now because on the track the movement of the virus fine it's not that i like it but if it happens it happens how do we ensure when we come out the back of this that they don't continue doing that and and that's you've re, you've actually shifted my thinking here in that that's that's almost where i think my my personal focus would be is acceptance of what's going to happen because i can't change it but what we can do is influence how we come out of this?
1: That's kind of where I am. Yeah. I don't know if we can, but I, I yeah, it's a, uh, you know, when when the when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro.
2: So yeah, you know. <laughs> well, well, dude, listen, it's always a pleasure. We should do this more often. I don't know why we don't. We should talk yeah.
0: often.
2: I always enjoy our conversations. You make me rethink things. You make me reconsider my firmly held kind of position sometimes. Look, it's a strange world. All I'm going to say to you is I say to everyone, stay safe, bro. It's um, concerning times. uh, Stay safe in terms of personal health, but also mental health. I think somebody, I I won't name them because they might not want me to say it, but somebody also shifted my thinking yesterday. They said, why hasn't anyone talked about the mental health impacts of this at a level where we need to come to an acceptance. We are going to see a higher level of suicide Mm -hmm. through this process. It's only natural that that will happen. We have suicide rates. The suicide rate is almost certainly going to go up through this as people face very, very tough situations. Um, so that's something we need to be aware of, but just as a friend, just stay safe, stay, stay healthy and stay mentally healthy and, and everyone listening. Um, Anyone who's struggling, my DMs are always open. I'm, my phone's always available. If someone wants to talk and if I can help in any way, please let me know. Um, but yeah, stay safe, bro.
1: You too, man. Thanks for having me.
2: Hold on. What am I doing? I'm concluding your interview like this is mine. I felt like this is mine.
1: <laughs> nah, I like it. I like it. You, you interview me. That's what happens. You could put two podcasters in a room. What happens, right?